we are live. We're just a few minutes early with our start today for the live stream. Sometimes that happens. I got stuff going on today. I got to go to the hell that is the DMV um, today to renew my license, which is now a nightmare in Texas because of how long you have to wait to get in. You have to make an appointment. So I, I want to get my day knocked out so I can take care of some other things and not miss the appointment. I had to wait four freaking months for guys, but that's not what we're talking about today. I thought today would be a good day for a fun episode. Something that's, you know, not going to, we're not going to talk about the war that Brandon's trying to start in the Middle East and the Warhawks are all clamoring for and Chicken Hawk Lindsey Graham is begging for. Um, they, we're not going to do that. We're not going to talk about the economic turmoil, though this will help you address economic turmoil because it'll keep more money in your pocket. We're not about any of this uh, gloom and doom, fire and brimstone crap. There's so many you seem to want because those are my most attended live streams and my most downloaded shows. Now, today we're going to talk about cooking. Cooking is one of my personal passions. I've been asked before, if you had to stop doing TSP for whatever reason and you, you're going to do a different podcast and you had to focus on one thing, what would it be? And it would probably be cooking. I don't, yeah, because I can cheat then and work gardening and shit into that, right? Uh, but it is something I love, and I've always loved it because it's 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 a combination of art and science. And I've always been a very meat heavy guy. I've always liked to eat meat, even when I've eaten a lot of other things, and and so I've gotten really good at cooking meat over the years. And, and I just wanted to do this today because I've realized something. Uh, discovering the world that is the hell of TikTok this year, or I guess over the last six months, and actually finding some channels there worth following or what have you, young people are afraid of meat. Now, I'm not saying they're afraid to eat it. They're afraid to touch it. They're afraid to cook it. They're afraid to cut it. They're afraid to prepare it. And I think that as much as I want to educate every single person that listens to this podcast I think we all that are a little bit older, that have been around a little bit longer, that have learned some things instead of just, you know, talking shit about younger people. One of the things we need to do is teach them. The reason they don't know anything is because the people that they relied on to teach them either didn't know how to do it themselves, which is often the case, or didn't take the time to do it and did everything for them. I personally think a lot of young people today, part of why they have this kind of, and, and this is their word, not mine, freak out about me or freak out about bones, or freak out about undercooking, or, you know, insert a different adjective there, but there's some version of where they freak out, or it weirds them out, or it's gross, or whatever, is because everything's always been done for them. They, they, we don't make them do things anymore. Mom makes sure that all of the things that they eat are boneless, and uh, uh, cut their meat for them until they're teens, and, and never have them cook anything, and so many people rely so much on restaurants and pre-prepared foods and things that come in a box or a bag. and all. You know, you're not cooking when you follow the instructions, remove from package, put it in oven preheated to 350, wait 45 minutes till top is brown and sides, sides are simmering. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not cooking. It's heating shit up that somebody else cooked or finishing the cook that somebody else started. And so when you get down to something real like meat and it has blood, it has, you know, maybe bones or maybe some parts that need to be trimmed off or whatever, and that's the life that you've lived, I get it. Well, we're going to try to to cure that today and I like that comment there from KJ4. 
Uh, try different cuts. There's more things than ribeyes, fillet, and sirloin. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about that today, too. Though we're going to talk about general cooking techniques and things that you can do to make your meat more tender, get more flavor out of it, and just enjoy the process more and make a better-looking product when you put it on your plate. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor today number one today is J.M. Bullion. You know, yesterday we did a show, an update on everything going on with Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is the hardest money on planet Earth. I also think the second hardest money on planet Earth is silver and gold. And I'm not a one-size-fits-all guy. I believe in diversity, whether you're planting your garden or growing your portfolio, having true diversity. Most financial analysts, would they or advisors or whatever they call themselves, what they call diversity is a, a random assortment of mutual funds or ETFs that are all in different types of stocks and or bonds. It's not very diverse to me. I, I like to have my wealth in a true diversified state. So while I do hold some securities like we just mentioned, I also hold silver, gold, Bitcoin. I see my real estate as an investment. I see the tools that I invest in as an investment. I see the knowledge that I gain as an investment. And there's a lot of other things that go in there. But gold and silver are something I will never not hold unless I have the emergency that requires me to actually spend them. They are anonymous wealth that I'll be able to leave to my, my heirs that you know nobody else needs to know about. And when I'm buying silver and gold, I get it from J.M. Bullion, not just because they're a sponsor. They're a sponsor because they have better pricing than most of the larger silver houses. They have real personal upfront service. They don't try to jerk you around and say you numismatic crap. You know, if you buy from J.M. Bullion today, you're not going to get a call three weeks from now trying to sell you some really expensive quarter that was, you know, lost in somebody's house or something like that. They just specialize in delivering high-quality silver and gold bullion right to your door. Uh, and they're also a really great way to introduce children to sound, reliable money because of all the cool rounds they have. And they give you a discount and all your orders over 200 bucks ship free. And uh, th I mean, who else does all that? So check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up today, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit for John Bush at Live Free Academy because I didn't know this was coming and I gave him a spot yesterday. So he's getting two in a row. Uh, John is launching something uh, called the uh, Freedom Cell Challenge, and it is going to be awesome. It's a five-day challenge from John Bush of Live Free Academy to walk you step-by-step -step through using the Freedom Cell Network to connect with real people in your local area, form communities with them offline and online, and develop your own counter-economy. It's all going to be free. You can just sign up and learn more about it. There is... Uh, links to the sponsors of the day in the video notes below. And, of course, links for everything will be in the audio version of this podcast when it's published on my blog at thesurvivalpodcast.com, which will happen roughly 30 minutes after we finish the live version of this podcast. So if you go down in the video notes right now and click that link that says this is where everything is and you click it and it doesn't work, you're not done yet. In fact, we've got a long way to go. So let's dig on into it. Let's start off with... Why are people freaked out by meat and so often overcook it? Like, what is that? Number one, the government guidelines in general are stupid. And that's the only word for them. They're stupid, and they result in overcooking meat. Especially in a lot of things like poultry, etc. What the government does when it sets a cooking guideline and says cook to at least this temperature is they assume that you're stupid and that you're not going to do it the way you're supposed to. And so they build a margin of error into it. They also assume that you're going to cook this meat to this temperature, take it out while it's screaming hot, and immediately start shoving it in your mouth, 
and not give it a resting period, which is really important with meat. And so if we cook something, let's say, to 140 degrees, and the guidelines say we're supposed to go to 150, it is usually the case that if it was cooked to 140 and left to sit for 10 minutes, it's at 140 long enough to do whatever 150 would have done instantly. And if we cook it to 140 and we let it rest, it's probably going to end up between 143 and 145 as the temperature carryover happens and comes back down. But they don't rely on any of that. They're trying to say, if you're an idiot, you can't read a thermometer, you're off by 5 degrees, and you immediately put hot food in your mouth, it'll still be safe. So pretty much, you need to look to cooks and chefs and recipes for cooking temperatures And when I say that, I am not including websites about cooking that are written by Autobot robots that just simply grab the guidelines from USDA, but people that actually know how to cook shit. And and then just don't be afraid to eat some meat that's rare. But that's something you have to do for yourself. Another one is social conventions, right? My grandkids both love rare steak, but I have to reboot them every once in a while because they go home to mommy my son likes rare steak, so he'll cook steak for the family. Mommy has to have hers ruined. We call that well done. That's fine. And she'll, to be fair to her, she'll do medium well with that little tiny bit of pink, as long as you hide it from her. And the kids are sitting there grubbing on some medium rare, and she'll say something like, Ew, don't do this to other people. If that's your problem, let it be your problem. I'm not going to sit there and look at your ruined steak and go, Ew, don't yuck somebody else's yum. But if somebody else has done that to you, please deprogram yourself and stop being afraid of things that are perfectly safe, normal, and by the way, taste better. And then it's a lack of experience, like I said during the intro. It's growing up. It's growing up in a household where everything is done for you, where mom and dad always bring food in from outside. No one cooks from scratch anymore. And in my case, you know, I had to figure it out on my own a large degree. And it was it actually restaurants fixed me, going like, what do you mean medium? You might like it. Try, yeah, I'll eat that. Oh, God, that's good. Because my grandparents were like old school Ukrainian immigrants that remembered a time when you bought meat and you bought the piece with the least amount of flies on it, and there was no refrigeration. So, and, and you know, they were taught by people who didn't even experience the transition. So their idea was you boiled and baked and cooked the shit out of meat till there was nothing left of it, and then it was safe. It was safe, but it tasted like crap. So much so that my grandmother used to make roast beef sometimes for Sunday dinner, and I'd go in there about two hours before she thought it was done, take the roast out, cut the end off, wrap it up in some foil and throw it on top of the stove, wrap her browning bag up and stick it back in there, and then watch everybody else eat meat that literally absorbed gravy like a sponge because it was dried out like a sponge. So we have all of that going on. Here's what I want to tell you the truth, though. For those of you that have all this as an issue, but you go to a restaurant and order a steak for 30 bucks and say it's delicious. Number one... Uh, good chefs and restaurants are probably tricking you when you order a well-done steak. Because what the chef doesn't want is you sending the steak back because it's dry. Well, there is no such thing as a truly well-done steak. Unless you use sous vide. You can do it with sous vide. I've learned how to do it for my wife. It's not drier than it should be. The longer you cook it, the less red in it, the more juice comes out of it, the drier it will be. Less juice, drier steak. So they actually have a bunch of tricks that they use. One is is they will actually very briefly microwave your steak 
after they've cooked it to the proper temperature. Another one is especially something that's to be served to use pre-sliced. They will take the jus that comes from like their prime rib and stuff, and they will take your meat and they will briefly soak it in there, and it will still be rare, but it will look like it's not. It will, in effect, kind of dye it. Like, so when you go to a restaurant and you're like, well, I ordered it well done and it was delicious. And when I make it at home well done, it's overcooked. That's because it wasn't well done at the restaurant. They lied to you. They created the appearance you wanted to see and gave you the flavor, the taste, and the, and the texture, and the juiciness that you actually wanted. So you can do that for yourself, or you can grow up and be a big boy or a big girl and realize the bread stuff you're looking at is not blood anyway. It's okay. You can eat it. People do it every day, and none of us are dead. And if I blindfolded you, I believe most people, not all, but most people who won't eat rare meat, if I blindfolded you and put in front of you two plates of food, same steak, cooked the same way, and one just cooked well done and one cooked medium, not even medium rare, like pink, and you ate it blindfolded, you would pick the pink one every time. It's, and I can't fix that for you. You have to figure that out for yourself. Uh, another thing that they do is they understand how a given cut needs to be sliced, pre-cooking, and post-cooking. So a lot of people don't really screw up the pre-cooking cuts because they're buying something that was pre-cut for them. So that one kind of goes out the window. A lot of restaurants are bringing in bigger cuts of meat and doing their own carving. And if you're doing that, we've done whole shows on it, you need to know when you're making a steak out of something how to do it. Usually butchers and stores know how to do that for you just fine, though. But there is something how meat is sliced post-cook. So for years, um, and I think most of these restaurants have caught on, or they've gone off flank state to like inexpensive sirloin or something for fajitas, but fajitas are generally made with a flank steak. The flank steak comes from the flank. And it has very large fibers in it, and if the steak is a rectangle, the fibers will go vertical. So... How do we make meat ready for fajitas? We cook strips of meat. Cut strips of meat. So what did everybody do with the flank steak? They cut it vertically because it was perfect length already. Now you've got this long-ass fiber, and you're trying to pull it, and what happens when you bite your fajita? The whole damn piece of meat pulls out like a rubber band, and people say, what? Flank steak is tough. Well, again, if you overcook flank steak till it's well done, it is kind of tough. But if you cook a nice medium, medium rare, anywhere in there, even medium well flank steak, but when you carve it, first, let the freaking thing rest. Second, however long you want your strips, cut a whole block off of that, that longer piece of flank steak. So if you want them about six inches, break it down into six inch blocks or close to it, however they divide, usually about three of them. Turn it and cut across the grain. And son of a bitch, when you bite into it as a fajita or in any way that you eat it, well, it's going to pull the fibers apart and it's going to eat much more tenderly. If you're not having a fajita, but you made a piece of flank steak, when you cut it, then cut yourself the, the, the size of the bite you want vertically and turn it and cut your pieces that way. If you're carving it to serve it to a table... Cut it on the bias against the grain so that it pulls apart and cut it relatively thin and let it freaking rest first. And flank steak will be one of the most tender, delicious things you will ever eat. And it's all about the direction of the grain. I use that one as an example because it's an extreme example. Another extreme example example would be Eye of Round. 
I round needs to be cut across the vertical, and then if you're going to make it as a stake, there's some things you can do to make it more tender. We'll talk about in a bit, but it will it will instantly be a more tender eating piece of meat than if you did it as a long strip that way. There's a way to do that too, and I'll tell you about that when we get to it. The next thing is restaurants and chefs use very high heat. Extremely high heat. Probably higher than you're capable at home, but you're probably not getting things hot enough when you go to put a sear on a steak. If you, Unless you're really happy with the sear you're getting, you're probably not getting your cookware to the temperature that you need to be. And when I say the meat needs to be dry to get a sear, I mean completely and totally dry. And there's some things you can do that will help with that that we'll get into, but regardless of what you do, before it goes in the pan or on a flat top or a grill or whatever you're going to use to sear it, you need to take paper towel and literally dry it till you can't get any more moisture off the surface. And then lay it down. And the drying needs to be done right before it goes in the pan because if you've salted the meat, and you should have, you will continue to have some moisture come out of the meat if it sits there for another 30 minutes before you put it in. So if you dried it and you got distracted and you came back, now you're going to sear it, give it another pat dry. If you do that, you're going to get a much harder sear. It does add some flavor to the steak, but it's it, a lot of it's aesthetic. When If I put two steaks in front of you, one's got a beautiful sear and one's kind of gray looking, even if they're the same inside, you're probably going to want the seared one. You're going to want that... You know, we know that there's there's flavor in that sear, and it is appealing to us. So they're using dry, uh, dry meat on a high heat, unless they're doing something like a braise or something. We'll also talk about that today. They use a lot more salt than you think they do. A lot more. We are afraid of salt. This is another thing. Again, the government is stupid. Please stop listening to the government unless you have an enlightened doctor that really knows why they're telling you to reduce your sodium. Stop worrying about it. Human beings in general will not eat too much salt. There's a point where we go, that's too salty. When you cook a piece of meat, and this is a, the, the thicker the cut, the more true this is. When you salt that meat, you create an osmotic process where moisture comes out and goes back into the steak. And when it does that, it distributes salt through the steak. You get one chance to do this, and this is before you cook the meat. You can put all the salt you want on top of a steak till it tastes like a salt brick. And it's still not the meat seasoned through. So they use significant amounts of salt, and they generally give the meat some time to absorb the salt. A lot of times the meat is actually pre-salted uh, as, so as it comes up, and that chef will add some salt to the top and throw it right on the grill, and you'll say, well, look, well, what he's done is he's added a salt layer to the outside where the sear is going to happen. But you, and, and I generally like to salt my steaks, and this is not a salted steak, just regular salt seasoning, salt and black pepper. I'll put them in a the refrigerator on a sheet pan with a cooling rack so they can breathe, and I like to do that at least 30 minutes before I cook. And in an ideal situation, I'll get it done by lunchtime and I'll cook at dinner time. And that steak will be tacky and it will not only have a wonderful seasoning through the whole piece of meat, it will also get a really great sear. And any additional like herbage or something like that, if I want to use that, I will add that then. And that, that tackiness, it will stick and get an even better sear. But this is all stuff restaurant chefs know, and they do without you seeing it. 
And I mean, even if I'm, when I say restaurant chefs, I'm not talking necessarily Capital Grill or Three Forks either. You know, any decent, any place you can go get a decent steak, franchises included, etc. These are the types of things that they do. Moon Sprout said he's learned a lot cooking uh, venison, and you will because it is lean. Now, whenever you watch a cooking show, there's a, this is something about cooking shows you need to know. They hype a lot of bullshit. This nonsense, right? So you watch like a competition cooking show and the person's going to use an egg in their dish for whatever reason. They're going to use a, a soft yolk egg that's going to pour yolk, beautiful yolk sauce all over whatever the dishes are putting it on. And you know, the, the judges there that are also badass chefs are like, Yo, you know, an egg is, you got to get it just right. So you got freaking three-star Michelin chefs sitting here can't handle a fucking egg. All right? Just let that put in perspective. When they say stupid shit like, oh, it's very lean, you can just dry it out. It's only if you're an idiot. But venison will reveal your idiocy faster than beef. Because it is leaner. It's not 100% lean. You have to stop listening to this bullshit. And the thing about venison in particular, you overcook venison, it tastes like liver. My wife, when we first got together, it took about three or four years for her to eat venison I cooked. I've had it before. It tastes terrible. You haven't had it cooked right, you know? And when I cooked it, she was like, oh, this, this is really, really good. Yep. So venison will, venison and other lean cuts will reveal the fact that you're overcooking meat. The trick is when you go to meat that has more fat with it and can handle it being cooked more, you only cook it more if there's a reason. In general, you should probably cook it to about the same level of doneness. It's going to be more tender. It's basically two ways to cook meat right. And that is just to the point, just to the point of doneness relatively quickly or very, very slowly across time until we break down all the fibers and make it something like a pot roast or a smoked brisket. They're not a lot in the middle. Just about any meat, no matter how good it is, will, if you cook it long enough, it'll start to actually toughen, and it'll keep toughening, and then it'll begin to break down and become soft. And it's just important to remember that. If you want to eat good meat anyway. So here's some tips for making tougher cuts more tender, like, say, an eye around steak or, or others. One is, of course, sous vide. Sous vide is something I think a lot of people are still hesitant about. When I first heard about it, I'm like, this is some fussy, yuppie, pain in the ass, high-level chef-y bullshit. That's exactly, I mean, it just seemed like the dumbest, stupidest thing I'd ever heard for an average person to get involved with. It just seemed like too much trouble. It is the damn easiest way to cook a piece of meat you will ever do in your life. It's the most foolproof. Because if you want to cook a piece of meat to 135 degrees, you stick it in a bag, you throw it in a sous vide circulator, you set it to 135 degrees, you push a button, and it will never cook to 140 degrees. It will never happen, never, 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 never. There is something you need to know. When you get done with a piece of meat that you're sous vide, and you get a pan scorching hot, and you sear it real quick before you eat it, it can throw that, especially a thinner cut, it can throw that temperature up quite a bit. That's why a lot of people like to use a blowtorch because that really, you got to really try to raise the temperature internally when you're searing with a torch. The, the hack here is when you pull it from the sous vide machine, leave it in the bag, set it up on the counter, 
design your sous vide cooking time so that it's done 15 minutes before you sear it. Leave it in the bag for a couple minutes so it kind of equalizes and begins to come down in temperature a little. Then open it up, take it out, dry it off, set it on a cutting board. Leave it alone for a good 10-15 minutes before you sear it off. It's not going to get cold in that period of time. The temperature will drop so you have more time to get the sear you're looking for. The other hack is use thicker cuts of meat. If you have, like me, you have a spouse and y'all usually split you know, you usually have a steak, let's say a portion of 12 ounces. Make a, if you cut your own or you're buying it and you're ordering your cuts, get really thick and cut it in half and use thicker pieces. What if your spouse wants theirs well done or close to well done and you don't? This is simple. Cook it for the long period of duration in the sous vide at the temperature you prefer. Put it in two different bags. Pull yours out. Jack the temperature up to whatever the hell you have to do to make them happy. Leave it another 30 minutes, and then don't worry so much about the cool-down time for theirs, because they want it well done anyway. And then you have happy, copacetic family life, and you only need one sous-vide circulator. Though two is one and one is none, so there's a good reason to have a second one. Right? Uh, another is, and this is something people don't really know. This is one of those things I think really is kind of a trick, or a hack, or call it what you want to. Do you know that if you freeze meat, for at least a few days. You take it out of the freezer and you put it in the coolest part of your refrigerator so it will defrost over a day or two, but it will take a it slowly defrosts. It will actually loosen muscle fiber up and you'll get a more tender uh, piece of meat. You don't need to do this with a ribeye, right? Or, or another, like a Denver steak or a chuck eye or anything like that. There's just no need for it. Uh, I often pre-season those, label when they were went in, like so. I'll I'll take that steak, I'll dry it off, I'll hit it with salt, let the salt absorb, then I'll add what other herbage I want to put on there with it, and I'll put that in a, a vacuum seal bag, chamber vac bag, and I'll vacuum seal it and I'll write on it what it's seasoned with and when I put it in there. And when I pull those out, if they're frozen, I'll throw them straight into a sous vide, and instead of cooking them for an hour, they cook for an hour and a half, two hours. They'll defrost and cook all in one go, and they're perfect. Don't do that with something like an eye-round steak or some of the lesser chuck steaks or, or some of the other cuts like that that you're going to cook in a steak-like fashion because you won't get any of that advantage of those muscle fires loosening up. So if you take something that people really think of as a low-quality piece of meat, you can buy a great big one and anybody can cut freaking steaks out of it to their thickness and maybe take the ends and use them for braising or something and you take that approach you'll be surprised at how decent that is there's another way to do it too that's much faster but you'll be shocked and don't cut the dadgone fat off the eye around it's lean and everybody cuts the dadgone fat cap off it well Oh, what have you done? Why? Why? I mean, if you're making pastrama or something out of it, that's fine. But if you're going to cook it, leave the dadgone fat on it and don't be bitching about it being lean when you've done cut the fat off it. That's just dumb. The other thing is if you're going to make a roast out of an eye around, an eye around kind of comes to points. It looks like a big tenderloin, even though I don't eat one like one. Those tapered pieces are going to cook much faster. Face that eye around up, meaning take that really tapered piece off Cut it up, use it for grind, use it for stew, use it for a braise, use it for some. Don't use it in the roast. And then making a whole eye of round into a roast, even once you face it up, it's still pretty damn big. 
bust it in half, make two. Even if you're going to make a lot, cook two. Okay. Get some butcher's twine. Learn to do a butcher's knot and 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 tie. Even though it's in a very uniform shape, tie it up. It'll cook better. Get a good internal temperature thermometer and cook it to a temperature that makes sense. And with an eye of round, that's probably with carryover about 125 degrees, and roast it at a very high temperature. Let's say 425 degrees. So I use a meter thermometer, M-E-A-T-E-R, for that. And when I'm doing an eye around, I have the set with four meter thermometers. So you get four big-ass pork chops on the grill. You can monitor them all separately. I actually put one in each side and keep an eye on it to make sure one's not lying to me. And I believe the one that says it's hotter than it is. And if you do that and you let that roast rest, you'll be surprised at how delicious a freaking $3.75 eye around roast is. It is, it is a, a luxury when you cook it that way. My grandmother, that was her go-to roast because it was cheap. It was like 67 cents a pound back in the 80s. And that's what she, she would annihilate it. It was inedible. How bad was it? I had two grandmothers, Ukrainian grandmother or Italian grandmother. <laughs> I thought that roast, until I was about 11 years old, I thought a roast beef and a beef roast were two different things. I remember telling my dad one time, we were going to my grandma's spirit because I'm like, I... I wish she would make a roast beef like Grandma Moyer does. And and, and my dad's like, there, what do you mean? She makes roast beef like at least a couple times a month, you know? I'm like, that's not a roast beef. She calls it a beef roast. He said they're the same thing. And I explained it to him. He goes, oh, don't you ever tell her that'll hurt her feelings. But that's when I started cutting the end off the damn thing. She thought I was going to get sick and die. And I never did. And somehow that never caught up with her. Ooh, brown butter. We're going to hit that one, Rachel. Don't don't worry. We will get to brown butter here in a minute. Next is um, salted steak. You can do this with something like an eye around as well. Now, if you're going to do this, I recommend that you use a cut of at least three-quarter inch to one and a quarter inches, one inch being a really sweet spot. Eye of round is a prime candidate for this. So are some other tougher steak cuts. Um, and when you do this, it looks like you've ruined it. I'm just going to tell you, it looks like you ruined it. You want to use a coarse salt, like a kosher salt, and you completely cover the steak, and you flip it over, and you completely cover it again. I mean like a crust of salt on it. And the formula is about 15 minutes per half inch. So a one-inch steak, you let it sit for 30 minutes that way. You then completely rinse it off. I mean, you, you put it under the faucet and just scrub the salt off it. Now... This is a steak that you do not need to put any more salt on it. won't be salty, but it certainly won't need any. Maybe if you like salt a lot, you might use a little finishing salt while you're eating it. Taste it first, okay? You do this, and when you rinse that salt off, you'll be able to feel that the fibers in the meat themselves have changed. Now, again, I love Redmond's salt. It's the number one salt I use. But it's a fine grain salt. For this, you need a coarse salt, or you're going to get too much salt inside the meat. This is one of the, like, this is not something chefs do. And I'm sure there's reasons why and probably has something to do with the government. But this is the way that you take a steak that is just like shoe leather tough, and you make it, I'm not going to say a piece of eye around is going to eat like a ribeye with all that luscious fat in it and shit. But it will have the tender to the tooth texture. And there's other ways to tenderize meat that I'm not real fond of, like pineapple. Uh, I think it has papaya, pap papaya or something like that in it. Papaya has it as well. 
it will tenderize me. I do not like the texture that you end up with. I just don't. Um, another way is a lot of stuff that's tough, you take that piece of meat, and again, you cut across the grain, okay? So if the grains are running this way, you want to be cutting across the grain. If you put your hand out like a, a, a horizontal karate chop in front of you, and imagine that your fingers are the grain, the way the grain of the meat flows, you want to cut across and probably on the bias. You take that piece of meat, throw it in the freezer for about 20, 30 minutes so it gets nice and firm. Get a really, really sharp knife and shave that meat just about as thin as you can cut it and all the same length. Or if you have a meat slicer, same thing. Partially freeze it, throw it on that meat slicer, whatever. Now, you probably don't want to go as thin as possible with a meat slicer, but figure out the thinness you're looking for. And then season that or marinate it however you want. And when you cook that, you're talking stir-fry. And not your uncle's stir-fry where he has a pot that's boiling and he thinks he's stir-frying it and the meat's really sitting in its own juice. You need high freaking heat like a Chinese restaurant or really high temperature on a grill. Putting that on a skewer with a, with a baste and cook that shit for like one minute. I'm saying 30 seconds aside, it's done if you have the heat high enough. Maybe two minutes maximum. You cooked that for five minutes, you made shoe leather out of something that was delicious. And you can take some of the tough, especially beef and pork, some of the toughest pieces you can find, and you cook it that way, it'll be delicious. It, it, it's, it, it's just, it really is. And K-Bonk's saying Redmond's course is really coarse. And it is, but it's expensive compared to just cheap kosher salt, and that's all you need. Because we're only using it as a tenderizer. That's what we're doing with it there, and, and salt flavor. Um, next is slow cooking and braising which everybody knows, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But if we take a piece of meat that's otherwise tough, and we very slowly cook it to a very high internal temperature, eventually all the connective tissue breaks down, and it is a fantastic way to do things. It's how we do, like a, a red wine braised short rib is just fantastic that way. But have you noticed something about short ribs over the years? When I was a kid, you went to the store, short ribs were cheap. They're less than a buck a pound. Way less. It might be 50 cents. But the other thing was, they left a lot of meat on the dadgone rib. Yeah? I mean, there was like, if you had two short ribs as rich as they are, you're full. And I'm not talking about a big old dino rib. I'm talking about a normal, you know, size piece of short rib, a few inches long. Two of those and you were good. You go to the store now, you buy a dadgone boneless short rib, you cook four of them for two people, and there's barely enough meat left for one. By the time you render out the fat and realize you paid mostly for bone, and they're nine, ten, eleven bucks a freaking pound. I'm going to tell you something that a lot of you ain't going to believe when I tell you. You know what's better than a short rib cooked that way? You cook exactly like you do a, a red wine braised short rib, brisket. And sometimes you'll find, it, and this is what you want to look for if you're going to do it with brisket, a, a butcher trimmed brisket, where they've done all the trim for you. Sometimes those are real expensive. Sometimes those are on sale for four bucks a pound. They're half or less than the price of a short rib, and you ain't paying for bone. And I'm all about bone stock and all, but not at $12 a freaking pound for bone. Now, I think this is asinine that the, the meat cutters of, of, of the retail world have done this, because the meat that they cut off that rib ends up in ground and gets sold for four bucks. 
you could leave it on there and people would be more happy to buy them and they'll pay you more per pound, but that's not the way the world works. So you can either make your own short ribs, you can cut them, you can cut like a mock short rib out of like a whole chuck roll really, really easily. But um, if you get brisket and you kind of cut it into long strips, and I'm not doing this so that it looks like a short rib. I want it to eat like a short rib. I don't care what it looks like. And you sear all four sides of that. You put that into something like a Dutch oven. You put whatever else you're going to, you know, whatever else you're going to cook with it. If you want to put some potato in there or something, whatever you want to do, whatever herbs and whatever. But you then fill that up with a mixture of red wine and beef stock until it almost covers the top of it. You put that on like 275 degrees and you let it go for like four to six hours. And you'll probably never buy short ribs again unless your meat cutter fixes their stupidity and charges a fair price. And you'll be like, oh, I never thought about doing that. Every, what do people do with brisket? You get the brisket, you put it on the smoker, you make smoked brisket. Fine. It's not the only thing we can do with it. And what makes the best kind of short rib out of a brisket is the point piece that has all that marbled fat in it. It's amazing. So, you might think, we just said you get a trimmed brisket. But a lot of times they'll have a trimmed brisket that has the top point piece and the bottom flat piece still together. You buy that when it's on sale, you take the top piece off, you use that for your slow, and then you make something like a pastrami out of your flat, which is traditional, which is not what we're going to get in today. Or it will cook just fine that way, too. I'm just telling you, the, 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 the eating experience of the point exceeds that of the flat in that capacity. I'm a point brisket guy. Anyway, I've never seen just the trimmed point on sale that cheap. But if it's ever there, I would buy it. I'd buy it in a heartbeat. This also means, of course, you could buy your own packer brisket, break it all down, make your pastrami out of the flat, and make several meals out of the point, and then take all that fat and render it as tallow and use it for cooking and other things. Like, there's a lot of ways to do this. But those are some ways to get that more tough meat more tender. Now, the big thing people struggle with is getting a good sear. So let's let's revisit that real quick so that we can all get the good sear that we're looking for. I want to start out with, you should use cast iron. You should use carbon steel. You should use stainless steel. Use a hex clad. If you do it right, you should get a good sear no matter what pan you use. There's no doubt that some pans might lend themselves, depending on your cooking method, whether it's induction, electric, gas, to do a little bit better of a job for you. I personally use 90% of the time carbon steel pans from Lodge. They're cheap, they last longer than you do, and they work really good, and they heat up fast. And they do not hold temperature like cast iron, but they actually let it go a little bit quicker, which to me gets you a better sear because I want the heat into the meat, right? The, the key with that is, since they don't hold quite like a thicker piece of cast, is you lay your meat on one side, and when you flip it, you go to a new surface of contact. That, that's, that's how you, you kind of account for that. Hex clads are really great. They're beautiful pans. In, uh, in Gordon Ramsay's words, they're the Rolls-Royce of cooking pans, and, and they're way more expensive than I'm willing to spend. I'm just not. And you can do, you know, if you like stainless steel, I don't, but I have no problem with you using it. So you can use anything you want, but here's what to do. Um, 
Number one, again, the meat must be dry. And I know this is crazy talk to think anybody would know, but the pan has to be hot. And what I mean by hot is when you put down a little bit of the cooking oil, you want to use something with a high smoke point, beef tallow, chicken fat, we call that schmaltz, um, something like that, lard, save bacon fat. Those are your four fats that you want to use at this stage. We'll get to butter. You don't want butter at this stage because it won't be brown. It'll be black, and it'll be charred. It's awful. Ghee will work in there, too. There's your fifth one. Ghee, uh, chicken fat, lard, bacon rendering, tallow. One of those. Just enough to give a light thin coating on the bottom. It should just be about to almost break like it just starts to smoke. So that's hot. You know, with tallow, you're looking at over 500 degrees. And when it just starts to smoke, don't worry. It's not going to keep carrying over. We're going to back that heat down and lay that meat down. It's immediately going to start pulling heat out of it. And we're going to go back to a good cooking temperature for it. And we're going to get a fantastic sear that way. And again, when we flip it, as long as we've got room in the pan, we want to go to some place that meat hasn't been yet because we've taken the heat from the spot that it had contact with. If we do that, we're going to get a great sear again dry. And let me explain that. You think it's dry. It's not dry. It's got a little thin layer of water on it. You put that water into that screaming hot pan, that water through surface tension distributes itself across the entire steak, and you think you're frying it even. Sounds like you're frying it. What you're doing is boiling off the water, and you have a little, just like when you hydroplane with your car, because your wheels aren't actually touching the road anymore, there's that thin little layer of water, you're, you're steaming and boiling that meat, and that's why it's gray. That, that's what's happening there. Uh, next, the more surface area in contact, the better the sear. So if you're using a pan or a flat top and you have a piece of meat that's going to want to curl on you because let's say it's got a big fat cap on the outside of it, take your knife and put a couple slices in that fat, especially like if it's got a little bit of silver skin under the fat. You know, A lot of people say you want to trim all your silver skin, but there's, there's cuts that they have that fat on the outside, and it, the only way to get that silver skin is to take the fat off, and you don't want to do it. So that silver skin really will shrink, and it really will cause that meat to curl. And so then you lose contact, and you can't sear something when it's not getting the heat. So again, cutting some slices. Sometimes you have fat inside, like a ribeye or something. There's no big issue there if you take your knife and go in and kind of cut that piece of fat in half, but leave it intact. That will also prevent that from happening. Pressing a steak is bad. Holding it flat is not. That's why I like aluminum burger presses. They don't weigh much. They just kind of help keep the shape because I can't stand there and keep them all perfect all at the same time if I'm making more than a couple. So that's another way that you can keep that surface uh, contact. And if you're using a grill, you really want to be ripping hot because you're trying to get not just grill marks, you're trying to get some sear in the area you're not making contact, and that's going to be done from air heat. Getting a good sear on a steak on the grill, you want to give it a light coating of that same fat before it goes on the grill because it transfers heat. And let's talk a little bit about that uh, right away. If you go outside and it's 60 degrees and you have no gloves on and you're not in the sun, so you're really getting air temperature, and you just let your hand sit out in 60 degrees, you're just like, oh, that's fine. 60 degree water, you stick your hand in there for a good 30 seconds, it starts to be really, really cold. Water is going to transfer heat or transfer temperature far more rapidly than air. Oil will trans, trans, uh, transfer it far more 
rapidly than water, mainly because the oil can heat up to a higher temperature. So that water hits 212 and starts turning to steam and starts steaming the food until it's gone. That oil heats up to 300 degrees. It's just sitting there on that food. That's why if you get grease on your hand, like if you touch a burner, it hurts, but it's not that big a deal. But if you get grease on it, it keeps burning. You've got to get it off. It can go really bad really fast. Yeah? That's why. So when we, what I like to do with a steak to get a good sear on it, take some tallow, chicken fat, whatever, put it in a little dish, throw it in the microwave, give it about 30 seconds, whatever amount of time it takes for it to, to, to go liquid. Take a brush and brush a thin coat on all sides of the meat you're about to put on the grill. And watch your sear get better, along with everything else, the seasoning, salt, all that. Like that That's on you, right? Um, another thing, though, is butter. And brown butter is delicious, but it will also really help get a good finishing sear on a steak. And the thing to do with that is I like to take a steak when it's almost done, but it's still got some time left to cook, a couple of minutes each side maybe, throw a, lot, a knob of butter in the pan, let it melt down, and start basting it over the, the steak, flip it and do it again, and then just kind of move it around. And then if it's got fat on the side... Before you pull it from the pan, take a pair of tongs, pick it up, and cook that fat. Cook that fat, get the fat to cook a little bit, to render out a little bit, and then that fat will be probably the best piece of, uh, of the steak. If you're cutting fat off and throwing it away, you're doing it wrong or it's not fat. right? If you've got some uh, tendon or silver skin or something like that, or it's boogery fat instead of good quality fat, if you've got good quality fat, you should be eating it. Especially if you're paying for grass-fed beef, it's what you're paying for is, is the quality of the fat. That's what you're really getting that's different. Um, next, with thick cuts of meat, what usually works best with those is get yourself, again, a good thermometer that can go in the oven while you're actively cooking. Meter is great. It's my favorite one. My stove actually, though, comes with a probe thermometer that plugs into the stove. But it, it's really, to me, it's only good for roasts. Because it's one. There's not like you can't do like two two steaks and try to cook two steaks for two different people to want them done two different ways. But a good thick pork chop, a good thick steak, whatever, if you're going to cook it indoors instead of out on the grill or the flat top, give it a great sear with, with thermometer already in it. Use a pan like carbon steel or cast iron or all stainless steel without a plastic handle, what have you, and go straight from your 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 cooktop into your oven to finish, cook to your desired temperature, pull out, and let rest. Again, your desired temperature needs to be less than your target temperature. Especially The bigger the meat, the more carryover there will be, and a good rule to bet on is 5 degrees. So if you cook a thick piece of steak to 135 degrees, it's probably going to carry over to 140 before it begins to come back down. And please, for the love of God... Let that temperature come back down probably to about 130 before you put a knife on there. You're not in a competition. You're not trying to beat Bobby Flay. The judges aren't sitting there waiting. Your family can freaking wait so that the steak they eat is delicious after you put all this time and money into it. Let the damn thing rest. Let the damn thing rest. Let it rest. All right, I'll let it rest now. Um, now, nothing beats a high-end broiler. Nothing. I have a Schwank Grills like 1500 degree broiler I'll just say if you can find the budget and this is something really important to you you like that hard char 
on the skin of the quail or a steak or a big, thick, juicy pork chop is probably worth the investment. Uh, anything approaching, and this is basically a salamander grill that they use in high-end restaurants, anything approaching that quality just a few years ago was over $3,000, and it was like attaching a desk to the wall of your kitchen. They were huge, three feet long, two and a half feet deep. They got a lot less expensive, but they were still huge. The Schwank, you can pick up and walk around with it. I keep mine outside with a cover on it. It is, I need to get in touch with those guys. I need to work something out with Schwank for y'all. It's expensive, but it's one of those things. It's expensive, but it's worth it. And they're actually the people that make the elements for the commercial salamanders in the restaurants. They just scaled it down and put it in a box and sell it that way to you. Uh, so they're fantastic. But the broiler in your oven, especially if you have a, a gas uh, a, a, a gas oven, is fantastic. And the key with broiling is to understand there's searing broiling and there's cooking broiling. And that's all a function of your distance from the broiler that's overhead. So even with the shrank, shrank grill, when I'm doing a thicker steak, I'll get the sear and I'll drop it all the way down until it hits a finishing temperature. Now that requires a little bit of an extra step, I guess. I don't care what it says. I do not trust my expensive meter thermometer up close to a 1,500-degree broiler. I, 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 I think it'll throw it for a loop, honestly, even if it doesn't ruin it. It just won't make sense to you anymore. So when I do that, I get a sear, I pull them, I install the thermometers, and I drop them way down, and I let them finish in the lower heat down, lower down, because the sear's already there. But I'm going to tell you that my dad didn't know how to cook a steak, and when he was home early enough to cook dinner, that's what he usually cooked. And we lived on broiler cooked steak in an electric oven, and it's better than the way most people make a steak. And he didn't even know what he was doing. He really didn't. But the broiler does a lot for you, so it might be worth learning. If you have an electric oven and you're using the broiler, you need to leave your oven door open just a little bit to keep it cycling because you're not trying to bake. You're trying to broil. You're trying to heat with radiant heat on the damn steak. Another cool hack if you're using the oven for this, is to go in there with like a cast iron or a carbon steel pan and put it in there and let it heat up under the broiler so when you lay that steak in there, it's hot on the bottom and the top. Again, use some sort of probe thermometer in this situation because it's going it's to cook really, really fast and you're either going to undercook it and then cut it and be like, damn it, and put it back in and ruin it. Or you're going to overcook it, and, and you ruin it either way. So don't do not do that. All right, let's talk about a couple other things. We've, we've really kind of focused mostly on beef here. Let's talk about cooking chicken like a pro. Chicken is the one, that, like, when I watch all these videos of people cutting, preparing meat, that the, the millennials, the young millennials, like you guys, like there's millennials now that are in their 40s and are on high blood pressure meds. We just stop picking on them, but Gen Z especially. Chicken freaks me out. Oh, my God, chicken. It has a bone in it. Oh, shut up. Let me help you. Um, first of all, there is something kind of nostalgic about a big, beautiful bird, whether it's a big roaster chicken or a turkey, and the skin's all golden brown, and the legs are sticking up in the air, and it's on a platter, and Grandma brings it out and sets it in the middle of the table. I get it. The chicken is not really meant to be cooked that way. God didn't design it that way. It's not uniform. It's not flat. It has two entirely different kinds of meat, a dark meat and a white meat, and I really think it has a third meat. The wing on a chicken 
is white and eats like the thigh. I so what is it? I don't know. It's like dark meat, white meat, and fake dark meat. I don't or far, fake white meat. The wings are really small. The breast is really thick. The thighs are less so. The the drumstick has a big thick part down to a thin part, and you're gonna stick it all in the oven, cook it at one temperature, try to finish it together. It can be done, but most chicken, if you start with a whole bird, should be broken down. And I would say that of all the skills that we don't teach young people, you know, by the time they're old enough to move out on their own, how to break down a gaggon chicken is is one of the most sinful that we don't teach. It is one of the ways to live so economically, especially as a young person starting out in that first apartment with roommates or whatever, and you're trying to get by and you're living on fast food, and you could be going out and buying six, seven dollar chickens. I know they're factory chickens. It's still better than McDonald's. It's still better than Taco Bell. Hold fire. We're talking about young people trying to get started out. They don't have no damn money. All right. And maybe you're you're fifty and you think I ain't got no damn money. So again, you're better off with that than you know Tyson chicken tenders or whatever. And there's the, the, the way you break down an organic, air-cooled chicken is exactly the same. So we want that skill of being able to part that bird out either into quarters or even breaking the leg off of the thigh, how to skin, how to debone, all of it. And if you do that, you realize that a couple chickens is a lot of meals for the person that is strategic with how they use it. And while I eat almost 100% meat now... If you are using sides like potato and a vegetable, you can get a lot of meals out of two chickens. A lot. So, first of all, break it down. Breast meat, and this is part of why, the breast meat of a chicken should really be cooked, if you're going to eat it warm at all, when you're going to eat it. It should be raw, you cook it, you stop freaking cooking it, you let it rest, don't cook Bright meat, poultry, before it rests. It's bigger of a sin than a steak, except the steak's more valuable. But it does more damage. Look how juicy it is. All your juice is on your cutting board now. Don't do that, okay? So, we want to cook it when we're going to eat it, and this is why. Reheated breast inevitably is dry. You can be really careful with it, and it'll be okay. But if I have leftover chicken... And some of it's white meat. I want to pull all that, chop it all up, and I want to do something like put it on a salad. Cold or, you know, maybe just warmed. Just to take the chill off it. Like you're talking 15, 20 seconds in the microwave so it's not bone chilled all the way through. If you want it to be the best. If you want it to be the best. Now, if you want to be able to reheat something... The chicken thigh is the most versatile piece of meat on the bird. We can do anything with a chicken thigh. We can break that off the bird or buy it already done with the skin on bone in. We can grill it that way. It'll be fantastic. You can batter that sucker up and deep fry it like KFC. It'll be delicious. You can pull the skin off of it, cook it with the bone in it, and it can be delicious. And that, that's really good for a lot of things that are using kind of an Asian direction. But in about... 30 seconds, even if you're not quick, once you've done it a few times, you can take the thigh off of the bone, and it makes a really nice cutlet, and you can cook it that way, and it'll be delicious. You can take it off the bone, leave a skin on it, and it'll cook, and your thighs will cook a lot more uniform if they're taken off the bone. When you pull that skin off, that's money. I'm going to say this about all chicken skin. 
But especially if you're buying like lots of thighs, bone-in, skin-on, and you're skinning them yourself, you take all that skin, you throw it into a frying pan, you fry them till they're crispy, you pull them out, put them on a towel or a drain, and you just eat them like candy because they're delicious. A little salt, pepper, salt them as soon as they come out like french fries, so the salt sticks to them. You wait till they cool down, the salt falls off. Freaking delicious. Another way to do it, render them in a pan till they're almost crispy, put them in a bag, If you're going to do it this week, throw them in the refrigerator, otherwise throw them in the freezer, and then finish them in the oven. Put them on a cookie sheet with a, a cooling rack. I love cooling racks. That's one of the best investments for your kitchen. Lay them out there. They'll take up a lot less space because if you already rendered them like 80% of the way, finish them in the oven, and they're a snack. Or you cut strips out of them and put them on like top of a salad or on top of something else that you've cooked. It is an incredibly valuable part of the bird. It's the best tasting part of the bird and it's discarded in droves. It's insane and we should not do that with chicken skin. In your pan after you've done that it's going to be a big giant pile of fat because most of the fat in a chicken is in the skin. Now that fat let it cool a little bit, pour it through a sieve into a, a, a mason jar, label it, throw it in your refrigerator. It's one of the best ways to cook a steak. I love beef tallow. I love lard. I love bacon fat. Chicken fat, though, man, you get a beautiful sear on steak with chicken fat. The other thing I like about chicken fat is when it's in a jar in the refrigerator. It doesn't get as hard as tallow or lard where you're, like, trying to get it out with a spoon. It just still is more like room-temperature butter. And it's really easy to cook with. And it's so easy to do... And what you can do if, if you're eating, you know, commercial or even organic but large bulk, like you can buy at Costco or whatever, buy several packages of chicken thighs and process them all at once. Break them up, put them away, render all your skin on a weekend. Save what you're not going to eat right away if you can do that because it's like laced potato chips but better for you. And, and then you've got meals for a long time, and it's, very, it's one of the most inexpensive cuts out there. I think regular chicken thighs, if you have a Costco business center, so just, you know, you're, you're not talking organic here or anything, but you can get a 40-pound case of them for like 67 cents a pound. And then people that eat, drink Starbucks every day will tell me they can't afford to eat well, and I just laugh. And if you try to educate them, sometimes they want to be educated, sometimes they just want an excuse. So it's up to people to figure that out for themselves. Um, if you're going to roast a whole chicken, because you can do it right, this is what I'd do if I want to do a whole chicken. It's called spatchcocking. You can look it up, but basically um, you cut the backbone out of the chicken and flatten it. And when you do that, you can look in at the inside of the breast, and you'll see you're looking in through the back, though. So you're looking to the front of the breast from the back of the bird, and you want to put a cut right down the center of that breast, and there's a, a they call it a keel bone. It's mostly cartilage. You want to pull that out. And then lay it flat, and a really cool way to do this is get a brick or two, wrap them in aluminum foil, heat them up in your oven, and when you put your chicken in the roast, put the hot, with some kind of protection for your hands, put the hot brick on top of them. That'll keep them flat, it'll cook more even, the brick will radiate heat into them. They call it brick chicken. It's very, very popular in Spain and Italy. Uh, and a lot of sp Spanish and Italian restaurants, not Mexican, Spanish and Italian restaurants, uh, will have some version of that. Uh, I personally remove the wings. 
when I'm doing whole birds, whether my own birds, birds I bought locally, birds I bought from the store, if I buy them whole and that and, and I'm going to cook them whole or anything, I always cut the wings off. And I've stopped doing the big long wings, you know, all three sections. I cut the tips off. They go in the stock pot. I break down the flat and the drumette, and I'll save them till I have enough to make it worth doing chicken wings. Really, really simple. By the way, chicken thigh, most versatile, most versatile thing on a chicken. Do you know if you love skin on, because that's the only way any, any normal person eats, bone-in chicken thigh or ch uh, chicken wing. You take a standard chicken thigh and you cut the meat off one side of the bone and the other side of the bone. You leave about a third of the meat on the bone. You take a skewer and you put your piece of that has no bone on a skewer, maybe two per skewer, and you grill those, season them up and cook them like you're making chicken wings on the grill. Anybody who eats them would be like, these are chicken wings, except the meat looks a little darker and they taste better. And they cost less than wings now. Wings used to be the cheapest cut of meat on chicken. Now it's a drumstick, a thigh, a wing, and a breast. That's the one. And then everything else, right? So that's just another little hack using that. And then when you're doing chicken skin on and you're not frying it, but you want that skin crispy, what you need in your life is just a little bit of baking powder. Now here's how I do wings. And my wife is like, you got that dialed in, never change it. I take whatever seasonings, and I, sometimes I go different ways on my seasonings. Sometimes it's like a chili powder cumin thing. Sometimes it's more like an Asian-inspired ginger chili thing. But I will take a significant amount, probably five, six tablespoons of pork panko. And per you know batch of wings, about what you would put on a sheet pan, again with the little uh, cooling rack in it to keep airspace under it, about two tablespoons of baking powder. And I'll put that in a Nutri Ninja with all the other seasonings. And I'll just, sometimes, you know, the Nutri Ninja will end up with like, it'll burn the shit out of it and it'll bunch it on the side. So open it up, mix it up. And you really want like the pork panko, especially pork uh, rind breadcrumbs. But you want them really fine for this. And you want that baking powder mixed in with them. And then I'll put them in a Rubbermaid tub. And I'll take that seasoning and I'll put it all over them and rub it into them. And I'll throw it in a refrigerator. I'll do that in the morning. And I'll cook them so it's like a day and a half. I'll cook them the next evening. And whether they're in the oven, indirect heat on the grill, whatever, you'd swear to God somebody threw that thing in a fryer. And if you're worried about carbs, I think I figured out that a tablespoon of baking powder has about seven carbs in it. So 14 carbs spread out over 24 wings. I mean, how many wings are you going to eat? It's just, it's just a phenomenal way to do things. All right. Moving on to pork. Okay. The government ha is less retarded than it used to be. I remember pork need to be cooked to 160 degrees because you're going to get trichinosis and die. There has not been a case of somebody dying from trichinosis in the United States from pork, commercially raised, since the 1950s. And it's not because everybody's cooking their pork to 160 degrees. The federal government finally lowered the number to 145 degrees. You can cook a pork chop to 145 degrees, and if it's not super thin, it will be good. There's no problem there. What is the temperature that you need to cook pork to to rule out a trichinosis infection? The number, 137 degrees. It's the number. As in 136 isn't. There's not a large amount of error room there. 
But if you cooked it, Eddie's saying 135. If you cooked pork to 135 degrees and you let it rest, it's going to go over 137 and then come back down, and it's still going to be fine. If you really want to be safe and you want to make kind of the best pork you'll ever make, especially like a big, thick chop, sous vide at 137 degrees for two, three, four hours. Let it cool all the way down if you want to, right? Let it cool all the way down if you want to. And then sear the shit out of it. And don't worry about the final internal temperature at that point, because it's already taken care of. When we're dealing with parasites, bacteria, etc., that get killed by temperature, it is not just a function of temperature alone. It's temperature and time, and it's temperature across time. So here's an example from the regular prepper space. What do they tell you about water? You're going to drink water from an unknown source. Filter it as best you can as far as particles out of it. You want the dirt out of it. Or and then somehow boil it. Boil it in a full rolling boil for 10 minutes. This is asinine. I don't know who came up with it, but they should probably be dug up from whatever grave they're laying in, reincarnated just so they can be smacked in the head a couple times with a frozen fish and put back to sleep in the earth. This is stupid. Water, anything that can get in water that's a problem, begins to pasteurize at 160 degrees. By the time that water goes from 160 degrees to 212 degrees, there is nothing left that could be alive in there. If we hold it at 165 degrees for a couple hours, it's totally safe as well. Meat kind of works the same way. So if we take something like a temperature of 135, 137 degrees, and we hold it there for a couple hours, there ain't nothing living in there. And we get a very tender piece of meat at the same time. Or go ahead and just grill it and... You know, I'm fine with grilling pork chops to 140 degrees. I'm not a complete purist on any of this. And then let me temper that with something else. You should cook your food the way that you want it. If you disagree with me and you like your steak ruined as far as I'm concerned, and that's how you like it and you really like it that way, go ahead and cook it that way. If you like your pork cooked to 150 degrees, go ahead and do it. There are people that if the pork just looks a little translucent, they won't touch it. That's social convention. That's up to you. I'm telling you how to make it taste the best, if you actually want it to taste the best. I also realized in talking about searing here, I skipped something in my searing section. I want to add it here so I don't forget. You know how they tell you take the meat out and let it sit on the countertop for 30 minutes for it to come up to room temperature? And that way it'll sear better because the outside isn't so cold? So... That always seemed like bullshit to me, so I took some steaks out of the refrigerator and I set them up on a cutting board. And I took my little E-Tech City thermal gun and I shot them with it and I looked at the number and the number said 37 degrees. Okay. So I let them sit there for 30 minutes and I shot them with it again and the number said 38 degrees. One degree. I waited an hour. That's about as long as I'm going to let my meat sit out like that. I went ahead and put it in the oven with the oven off, just so flies wouldn't get on it and shit. I let it sit for an hour, and I shot it, and it said 39 degrees. That doesn't make a difference when you're searing, and whoever came up with that needs to be smacked in the face. They're probably dead by now, so we can't do it. But it's bullshit. It's a myth. It doesn't work. I don't care if Gordon Ramsay said it. I don't care if Jamie Oliver and Bobby Flay put together a compact with every other well-known chef, including Guy Fieri, 
and they all got together and published a canonized version of the Cook's Bible and swear to God that it's true, and they all put their hand over the actual Bible and swear it's not. Because it can't be, because I've measured the temperature, and it's a lie. So stop believing things that you haven't tested. Go ahead and test it for yourself. Go ahead. Next time you're going to sear a piece of meat, leave it on the cutting board for 30 minutes like they tell you. Get your little thermal gun. If you don't have one, buy one. They're like 20 bucks, and, and take two readings. And when you're talking two, three degrees at maximum of difference, it's not going to change anything. It's a lie. It's bullshit. Don't believe it. It's not true. Anyway, going on. Um, pork chops scream for a hard sear. To me, that's what makes a pork chop. One of my favorite things to buy, and it is commercial, but I haven't found anything that I can get anyway locally that's as good. It's Costco Business Center. Sells a whole rib rack pork. So what you're getting is one side of the rib with the bone in of the rib section. So from where the pork butt, which is the shoulder, down to where you get to the, 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 the loin, the strip loin. That piece is about foot and a half, 18 inches long. They sell that, and it's like a dollar something a pound. And if most people would get that and they wanted to cut chops out of it, they would cut them about a half inch. If you go and you leave everything on one side of one bone and all the way up to the side of the other bone and then skip a bone and do it like that, you get one bone, but you get double thick chops. I don't know where the hell they get their pork. Because it, it, it's not the same as the pork that you buy from a regular Costco. Again, this is the business centers. I think there's 12 of them in the country. You can look it up and see if there's one near you. These, every person I've served those pork chops, they're like, oh my God, where'd you get this pork? And it's like cheap, and it's just beautiful pork. And I think part of it is the business centers at Costco are designed mainly to serve like restaurants. And so I just think they have a higher quality, lower price com combination there with these big cuts. Um, because they're amazing. Please stop trimming the fat off your pork chops. Stop doing that. The, the fat of pork is one of the most delicious, luscious things on the planet. I can live on pork fat, honestly. So don't do that to it either. Thick cuts of things like chops, again, they're much easier to sear and keep juicy. If you're going you're gonna to use thin pork, like everything else, fast and hot, and some sort of like a glaze is really nice for that, like a, a kebab or something, or stir fry. Um... And that's kind of all I got for you guys today. Um, I didn't see any questions coming in. Of course, I'm alone. I got one eye. So, you know, that is what it is. But I hope this just gives you some ideas. If you take two or three things today and incorporate them into your cooking for the rest of your life, it was worth, you know, the cost of admission and then some. And uh, I also encourage you, not just me, cooking, period. Make it a goal in your life to learn one or two or three things and start practicing how to do them in your life with your cooking every month for the rest of your life. You know, until you, until you, if it starts to bore you, it starts to bore you. But you're, you're talking about science. A lot of cooking is science. It's chemistry. Um, it's math. You can use it to teach homeschool kids all kinds of things when it comes to, like, factoring how much of something to use with something else. And we all have to eat. Even if we're one meal a day, we have to eat every day, right? And it's one of the biggest expenses that humans have. I'd say today probably your biggest expense is housing. 
your second biggest expense for some people is their biggest expense is, is health care, and it's usually not care, it's insurance. And then vehicles. And then food. And I think a lot of people, food is probably more than they pay for, especially people who have like older cars and they, they ride them for a long time. They might pay more for food than they do for transportation. And if that's the case, then shouldn't we get the best quality for the least money we possibly can? And, and my, my answer to that is yes. And to me, the way we do that is we take responsibility for it ourselves. Because I can make a steak... That, well, I'll have five bucks in that one piece of steak that you know my wife will eat or I'll eat, or maybe ten at, at the outside of a really choice piece of meat. That steak in a restaurant is going to be twenty-five to forty-five dollars, and in some places, it's, you know, if it's going to be more than that, it's probably dry aged or something, which I, I don't do yet anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, how many more times can I eat that in a month for the same money with that variance? Three, four times. It starts to matter really, really fast. This is also a skill, if you develop it, as you're developing it, you can teach your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, whatever. If you want to empower a young person to be self-sufficient, you can't leave this out. I'm not going to say it's the most important thing or it's the only thing, but it's a necessary element, in my view, to being a self-sufficient human being. Being able to go to a store, buy Buy ingredients, not boxes and bags. Come home, cook those ingredients into a nourishing meal. It doesn't take very long. One of the things I love about meat is I find that it takes me longer to make a side dish if I'm making side dishes for company or something than it does to make a steak. I can make a steak in 15 minutes. You know, I, I don't give it another five to rest and it's 20. And I'm talking from the time that I'm like, I'm going to start cooking until we're sitting down at the table. It's 20 minutes. I can't make mashed potatoes in 20 minutes. Not that we make them or anything, but I, I can't. It takes a lot long. Unless you're using potato powder. I mix it with, with water and heat it up and stir it. That's not what we're talking about today. So see this as a life skill and make sure that you're teaching it to the next generation. If you didn't learn, teach yourself while you teach them. And it's something I'll tell you after 16 years, it'll be in June this year. It's almost 16 years of TSP. Of teaching, the more you teach, the more you learn. You know, there's the old saying, those who can't do teach. And, and in bureaucratic situations and all that may be the case. People that really pour it out teaching, like they really... Like, when I say teach, I mean... You figure out what you want to do. You learn how to do it, and then you translate it into a way that somebody else can do it instead of somebody going, here will be your lesson plan. Follow along the lines. When you teach the first way, you really do develop your skill to a much higher level because you have to you have to do it so you can convey the information articulately. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up. Let me remind you guys, you can always help the, sh the, the show out and the work that we do here by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I know what you're thinking. Jack has got to have something to do with cooking as today's item of the day. That would make sense from marketing, but I really care about serving my audience. So the TP-Link Deco AXE 5400 Tri-Band 6E Mesh System, which is a wireless network for your home is on sale today at a significant discount in fact it is 23% off and this is a several hundred dollar solution so 23% is like a hundred bucks it is the best the absolute best 
uh, mesh network system I could find for the money without going the stupid cost of expense. It took me about six months to decide what I wanted. And then last year in June, I bought this. I installed it in my house, and it changed my world. Everything got better. My live streams, daily use, the kids' use, all of it. It also has an app that comes with it for free that tells me whenever a device joins the network. So somebody did manage to get on my network, and I don't even know if it was like somebody next door that I let use it or something, but all of a sudden, like, a device, an Android device popped up on my network. I was at a Little League game. It's just block. That fast. Oop, block. If I hear something from somebody that I say could use it, then I'll worry about it, you know? Um, so it has that. But the big thing about it is you set this up. You take the, the, the set that I bought has three. You can buy two if you only need two. You can buy four. You can buy extras, however much you want to cover area. You take one, you unplug your old router, and you toss it, or you sell it to somebody. You plug your connection into it, it becomes the router. And then you place the other ones wherever you want to extend signal from. You follow the instructions, and when you're done, when you walk through your house with a wireless device, it simply hands off seamlessly to whichever one is closest, but it's all one network. It's not like a lot of network extenders like, this is network A and this is network B. It, it, it's completely seamless. They also do have the ability to connect with, like, Cat6 or whatever, Hardline. So we have one out in my shop now, which has made everything better. And we have a piece of Cat6e that runs all the way out there to do that. Then it acts as an extender to other places outside. So if I wanted to do a stream someday, like from the garden, I could just take one of my extra devices, open the window in the garage, plug it into the side of the garage, and I have full booming signal right there. It's just really cool. I know you probably won't use it that way, but if you have dead spaces in your house, area where your signal gets weak, or when you have company, it really puts a load on your network, this is the solution. They're just fantastic, and they look really cool. They kind of look like an essential oil diffuser or something. They don't look like an obnoxious electronic device, hence the Deco. And uh, Dark Horse is saying, I love my Deco. It's an older model, but rock solid. I want to say that, too. A lot of y'all, when you look at this today, if you're like, that's pretty pricey, everything from TP-Link works really good. And if you just want a better home network, the lower expensive ones will work. I do commercial work here. This is an office that's, you know, like I run my business on this, and I have events here where there's 70, 80 people here. And so I went kind of with the top-end solution. And... Uh, <clears throat> So you can definitely use the less expensive ones. Uh, that's just kind of like the best I could find for the money without going into like a five or $600 solution there. And uh, one real important thing with this to understand, I don't care how good your home network is, it can't fix the quality of your ISP. So in that little geek talk networking conversation here, but I'll try to make it real simple for everybody, there's two types of networks that you're dealing with. There's LAN, local area network, and there's a WAN, your wide area network. Your router is sitting there, and you have a connection or a modem. You have a cable coming in from the outside. Okay, That is where the signal from Comcast, AT&T, whatever, originates. And it, now it's in your house. Now it's in the customer premise. That's your local network. It's a demarcation point. Yeah, And... You only have so much bandwidth on that side of it. 
So you can get a gajillion, quadrillion, you know, uh, pipeline inside your property. And if you're using a network to transfer files from one computer to another on your network, it'll be lightning fast. It'll be amazing. As soon as you go outside of the internet, to live stream, to download, whatever, that pipeline is choke point. And no matter how good your LAN is, it won't make your WAN better. And, and conversely, no matter how good that pipe in to your house is, if you have a shitty local network, then you're going to be limited by the local network unless you're plugged directly into the box. You want to know if that's the case or not? If you have a laptop that can connect with an RJ45 data cable and can be wireless, go download something on your network. Yeah? And I'm not talking a few seconds here, but if you have a noticeable difference downloading something wirelessly and then you jack straight into your, your, uh, your router, and when you do that and you have a hard connection out and you're not going through your local network at all, it's much faster, you probably have an issue with the speed of your local network. Probably. That's as far as I'll go today. And then real quick before we dry up, you know, one of my favorite people from history was Benjamin Franklin. Not just because he's a founding father, because the guy was really, really cool and wrote some really cool stuff in, like, Poor Richard's Almanac. And one of the things that he said that came to wealth and the value of knowledge was, if a man empties his purse into his head, no one can take it from him. In other words, the value of knowledge exceeds the value of things because knowledge can be used to get more things or make more things. Where it might be a good place to invest your knowledge right now is the course that I have available at homefoodsystems.com. It's called Bioreactor Compost. And it will teach you, it is a six-hour course, plus two hours of bonus video, plus exams, plus certification for 40 freaking dollars. It will teach you how to make the best compost in the world. And if you're watching the video or if you get the Daily Mail and you click on the link to see it and you look at the two plants in that image right there, that's all I need to say. That's the difference when we go biology over chemistry. Those are two cuttings put in the same cups. And the only difference is the, the, the media that they're in. One is in a very, very high-quality potting soil called Fox Farms. It is one of the best commercial potting soils you can buy. The other one's in my compost. You can tell which one's in the compost. It's like twice as big because biology beats chemistry all the time. Empty a little bit of your wealth into your brain, and no one will ever take it for you. MSB members, it's 35 bucks, not 40 if you go to the MSB first and get your discount code. With that, guys, have a great day. I'll catch you tomorrow. We're going to be talking about Bitcoin, but we're really going to be talking about, well, kind of being an anarcho-libertarian activist. I have a guy coming on tomorrow named Tomek K. I'm not giving his last name. Kind of common in that space. He works for GetAlby.com, the Albi Lightning Wallet. And we're going to be talking, and he's from Poland. We're going to be talking about the work that Albi's doing and he's doing, uh, Bitcoin culture, Bitcoin cult philosophy, a film that's coming out, Albi's actual mission, does guerrilla activism work, and more. So even if you're not normally in the Bitcoin persuasion, you might like that episode because maybe it'll make you think a little bit differently. And I've been noticing something. There seems to be a sea change going on right now. More and more of you that used to not pay attention to Bitcoin are starting to pay attention. So tune in tomorrow and I'll catch you then. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? 
said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way.